We're going to try something a little bit different tonight. Instead of our usual perusing of the news of the day, reacting to the headlines, we're going to ignore the news. We're going to turn our social media news feeds off. We're going to dial it all down. We're going to get ourselves in a nice, quiet room. And we're just going to chat like human beings about deep and profound and meaningful topics. We're just going to talk about ideas tonight. I think uh, I think we're due that. I think we're due a little vacation, don't you? A nice vacation from the the background noise, the insanity of our news feeds, of our news streams, of the you know breaking news, breaking just now, breaking, breaking, breaking. It's a news alert, right? Like, all right, can we just can we set back? Can we stand back from that for just a moment and have a <laughs> some quiet time, some time for reflection? Sometime, here's my objective for tonight. I want to remind us, I want to remind us of what really matters, of what it is that we're really getting after. The reason why we pay so much close attention to the news, the reason why we're engaged in the public discourse, the reason why we're engaged in political activism, what's the purpose? What is it that we're getting after? What, after all, is the point? Because there has to be a point, right? Like, why would you even subject yourself to it? Why would you even bother to deal with all the baggage that comes along with it if there wasn't some kind of end to it all that you were trying to serve through these often insane means that we call politics and political engagement? And, you know, the the very loose, I don't really have much in the way of of notes or articles. We're not going to be going to any sources tonight. This is going to be a free flow monologue for the entire show. But I do have eight rules, eight standing rules for the program that I want to take us through. Now, longtime listeners of the show, if for, you happen to have tuned into us when we first came on the air early last year, there was a certain point at which I came up with these eight standing rules for closing argument which is the show you're listening to by the way with walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 fm and twin where we stream 1035 fm also an option your iheart radio app also an option brad omlin produces the show when we first started doing this program about a year ago, I came up with these eight standing rules for the program, and I did a show at some point where I ticked through them much in the way that we're going to do tonight, but I've changed them. These are the revised standing rules, second edition for closing argument, and this is after a year and a half or so of talking to you guys and paying, having my ear to the ground, listening to the news each and every day, and as a result getting a new sense of, you know, what these rules ought to be, what we ought to be focused on here on the show and, and, and the themes that have emerged in terms of the different topics we've discussed over the past year and a half. And th- that's going to be our only guide for tonight, these eight rules that I've come up with. And the first one, which is the only one that remains intact from the original list from last year, the first one is the foundation upon which everything else we're going to talk about tonight is built. And that is the law of identity. A is A. 
you know, the common way that you hear this said is, it is what it is, right? Like you've said that. It is what it is. You've heard other people say that. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? It is what it is. Now, what is it that we mean when we say that? What do we mean when we get to that point in a conversation or in our own thought process where we just take a big breath, sigh, let it out, and say, it is what it is? Well, on some level, you know, whether we're perfectly cognizant of it in the moment or not, whether or not we're fully aware of the philosophical implications of that thought and of that phrase, what we're saying is that the situation is immutable. It cannot be changed. That we've, we've reached an impasse. We've reached a point past which we can't wish away whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstances are, whatever the problem is. It is what it is, and it is not going to change. It is not something other than what it is. It simply is that thing. A is A. And, you know, this is called the, the technical philosophical term for it is the law of identity. This is something that Aristotle came up with, one of his many contributions to the field of philosophy, the law of identity, which is quite simply that identity is a thing that exists, that a, a is A, an apple is an apple. It's not an orange. It's also not a pear. It's also not a banana. It's an apple. It's also not a dog, right? Like, And you wouldn't think that we need to either think about or write down or spend time talking about on talk radio something that's so self-evident, right? It is what it is. A is A, an apple is an apple and not a banana. But we do. We do have to talk about it. We do have to affirm it. We do have to go back to it and reestablish that this is, in fact, the reality. And the reason why is because so much, so much of what we see in our day-to-day in terms of the, the news that we're encountering and certainly the arguments that are being presented in the public discourse and in the field of politics and many of the policies that are being put forward by the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and fill-in-the-blank Democrat and even some Republicans are efforts to willfully ignore this fundamental philosophical law, the law of identity, that things are what they are. By way of example, you know, Ocasio-Cortez is all the rage right now. She's all the rage on, on the left for being this, this icon. It's amazing how, how, how low the bar is, apparently, for becoming an icon in politics. All you have to do is win a primary and be young and a woman and fit all the intersectional, check off all the intersectional minority check boxes and whiz, bang, boom, you're an icon, apparently. Apparently that's how it works. And, and when you put it in those terms, it must not be that difficult. I don't know why there aren't more icons on the left. But she's an icon on the left, and on the right, she's popular to make fun of. She's popular to point out as an example of exactly the kind of thing that I'm about to use her as an example for, which is, you know, in short, stupidity and impracticality and a high level of immorality. And we're going to get into morality later here in the program, and this will make more sense. But, you know, just to give you an example of how she flouts and disobeys the philosophical law of identity, she imagines, and Bernie Sanders is ahead of her on this, has been doing it much longer, she imagines that we're somehow going to enact this policy, Medicare for all, right? Universal health care, socialized medicine, doesn't matter what you call it, it's all the same thing. 
where the government is going to be the sole means by which people obtain their health care. And, you know, the, the premise being that we're going to we're going to harvest all this magically growing money that just grows on trees. And it's, it's funny because, you know, our dads all used to say that money doesn't grow on trees. Apparently not all of our dads said that because they're one half of the population apparently believes it does. They think that money just happens naturally. It's like a natural process where money just occurs somewhere. And there's this source of it that we're going to go out and harvest and then use that because we're a wealthy country. We're going to use that, that wealth that just appears out of nowhere to fund this socialized medicine scheme. And it's been estimated by left-wing sources, not by some you know crazy right-wing kooks, not by Cato, not by, you know... <laughs> Not by uh, the the Heritage Foundation or, or a group along those lines, but by the left wing, by their own institutions, their own academics, their own institutes have estimated that to implement this Medicare for all plan, it would cost thirty two point six trillion dollars trillion with a T. Now, asked how she was going to pay. For all of her proposals, not just Medicare for all, but her entire agenda, which includes things like a federal jobs guarantee and free college education for anybody who wants it nationwide. I mean, all of these things are good. Those, the $32.6 trillion is just for the health care portion of it. On top of that, she also wants to create all these new unprecedented huge bureaucracies and programs that are going to cost trillions more. And she was recently asked on a podcast, how are you going to pay for all of this? And her answer in short was, well, what we're going to do is we're going to reverse the Trump tax cuts. We're going to close a lot of tax loopholes. And we're going to, we're going to uh, do a couple other things here and there. We're going to cut some spending in areas that lefties don't like, like the military and such. And by doing that, we're going to be able to raise, over the course of 10 years, we're going to be able to raise $2 trillion. Two. Now, the logical follow-up to this is, okay, Alexandria, that's great. Where are you going to get the other $30.6 trillion for only one of your ideas? For only one. Now, in a sane society, in a sane world that had any sort of reverence, or even, forget reverence, recognition of the Aristotelian law of identity... You know, this notion that A is A or it is what it is. In a sane society, the logical follow-up question to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez putting forward this plan by which she's going to raise $2 trillion would be, where are you going to come up with the other 30.6? And also, get off the stage. We would laugh at her. She would be laughed out of the public eye as being ridiculous and silly. A silly little girl who doesn't belong anywhere near serious public discourse because she's she's not acknowledging basic facts of reality. But obviously that hasn't happened, right? Like she she remains a icon of the left and she's taken seriously. And she's someone who's held up as an example of the the, the Democratic National Committee chairman said that she's the future of the Democratic Party. The future of the Democratic Party is is putting forward as public policy proposals to be taken seriously, ideas for which there is 
No rational possibility whatsoever. Zero. There's a zero percent chance that she's going to be able to implement what she's talking about. And it's and it's not even a quite matter of opinion. It's a question of objective mathematical fact. It can't happen. Her premise cannot work. Her platform will never come to be, no, regardless of whether or not she wins, and regardless of whether or not her party has total control of government. We could elect in 2020 a new Democratic president and have a com- complete supermajority control from the Democratic Party of both houses of Congress, magically somehow get an entirely left-wing Supreme Court. And even with that, even with 100% total control of everything, she could still not physically manifest her ideas because that's how stupid and misaligned with reality they are. That's why we have to start off and in this, this list of standing rules that I came up with. That's why the first one is A is A, the law of identity. It is what it is. Things are what they are. We have to start there because we have a huge segment of the population which has an enormous amount of political control that refuses to acknowledge the simple facts of reality. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 9 to 11 weeknights, appreciate you joining us. We're doing something a little bit different tonight. Every once in a while, I decide that it's time to put down the newspaper. It's time to turn off the internet. It's time to shut down our phones, put them face down on the table, or better yet, you know, tuck them away somewhere where we can't even see them, and just forget about the news. Forget about the headlines. I know it's counterintuitive, right? Twin Cities News Talk. But we're going to forget about the news tonight. We're just going to get back to basics, talk about some ideas, talk about the the fundamental ideas, the standing rules, if you will, that inform our commentary. And, you know, this is something that I came up with in a, a list of standing rules for the program early on when we first came on the air about a year and a half ago. And we did a show uh, back in the day that I'm sure you can find by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app where I went through them, and they were decent. They were all right. But, you know, having been on the air, talking with you guys, building relationships, and going through issues for all this time, 18 months, I've gotten a better sense of priority in terms of what these rules ought to be and why they ought to be, which is even more important than the what. And so I'm presenting the Standing Rules for Closing Argument revised second edition this evening. Our first one was A is A, the law of identity. You know, this notion that it is what it is. That <laughs> that reality is a real thing that actually exists and that cannot be changed through imagination or wishing or an act of will, right? And this is important to acknowledge because it it is a defining characteristic, a defining distinction between broadly speaking between the right and the left. Now that's not to say that people who identify on the political right can't be guilty of ignoring the law of identity. They absolutely can and often are. But it is endemic on the left. It is a defining characteristic of the left that they do not recognize and won't even acknowledge or or attempt to acknowledge or incorporate into their thinking the immutability of reality. That identity is a thing. I mean, just go down the list of things that they try to deny. The gender, 
right? You know, a, a man isn't really a man if he decides he's a woman, right? You know, the 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 economic theory, of course, we're going to get into that later on the program as well. That a, the, a price isn't actually indicative of realities in production and the supply chain, but we can somehow change it in order to artificially benefit people's lives through an act of Congress. Now, that's a little bit more of a complicated example, but nonetheless, it's an effort that the left makes to ignore reality. So the second rule here that guides our analysis here on the program is that morality is objective. Now, what do I mean by morality? Because, you know, as soon as you bring up morality, it's funny, one of the things that you frequently will hear and I've said myself in the past, and now realize I was incorrect in doing so. One of the things you'll often hear people say is that they don't want the legislation of morality. This is a big thing in libertarian circles. We shouldn't legislate morality. You know, we should leave that to people to figure out on their own. Now, I understand the sentiment. I understand the sentiment behind that phrase, behind that meme. But if you stop and you think about it for any length of time, you quickly realize that that's an absurd notion. Because what is legislation? What is the craft of law? What is it that you're trying to affect when you pass a law? You're very clearly trying to intervene in people's choices, right? You know, when you make something illegal, you're declaring that we are not going to allow people to make this choice. Or on the, on the reverse side of it, when you mandate something, you are taking people's will out of the equation and choosing for them what they shall do. In either case, you're intervening in human choice. And that's the purview of morality. That's what morality is. What do we mean when we talk about morality? We, we're talking about a code of guidance, a code of values that we refer to when making choices. That's the domain of morality. That's the moral domain, the domain of choice. And so, of course, we're into legislating morality. Everybody's into legislating morality. That's all that legislation is, is an intervention in moral concerns, choices that people make in a social context. And so it's important for us to understand the nature of morality and to have a solid grasp on what morality is and why it is what it is. And so that's why we, we come to this rule, which is morality is objective. And that's a sensational, provocative idea in any circles, left or right, the notion that morality is objective. Because the, the common and prevalent view in a bipartisan, across-the-board fashion is that if morality is, if not relative, which is a view that's commonly held on the left, that at the very least it is subjective to a large degree. That it's it's something that is up for debate. It's something that we're trying to to ascertain or or discover through that that can be different depending on the circumstances. One thing that's moral in on one set of circumstances may be immoral in another, and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, is that the m morality is rooted in objective reality. And I want to kind of take you through as quickly as I can in a radio segment the rationale for how and why this is. We talk, we, when we talk about choice, 
being at the root of it, being the choice, being the moral domain. Who is making the choice? Well, a person, right? You or me or somebody else, a human being is making the choice. So at, at its root, we're talking about human life. Human life is the context in which moral choices are made. Okay, so what is human life? And, and why is it connected to moral choices? What is it about human nature that necessitates choices? And when you think about that and you examine it, you realize that, well, in order to survive, human beings are unique and distinct from animals and that we require conscientious chosen action in order to survive and thrive. You know, we're not, we're not like... Uh, an animal that wakes up in the woods and acts on instinct to pursue the values that it requires in order to sustain itself. You know, we don't, we don't get up and just instinctively find our food, instinctively find shelter, instinctively find a mate. It doesn't work that way for us. We are different. We need to put thought into how we go about obtaining and keeping our values. Indeed, we need to put thought into what our values even are in the first place. And this is, and we also need to choose whether or not we are going to choose. And how many people make the choice? You know, this, is, this is one of the chief problems in life, one of the chief problems in our culture and in our society and historically throughout human society. One of the number one problems is the choice not to choose. It, the much of you look at left wing politics and politics generally much of what proves successful in politics is the offer the proposal the absolving you from the necessity to think right we're going to do it for you if you vote for me i'm going to give you fill in the blank we're going to take care of your health care we're going to take care of your education we're going to take care of your housing we're going to do it so that you don't have to leave it to us to come up with the solution so you don't have to think about it. That's the choice not to think. And it has moral implications and practical implications that we'll get into here later as we move through the program. But for, for the for the time being, for the sake of making this point that morality is objective, we recognize that it is it's human life and the requirements of human life that necessitate choices. And so morality, you know, being, being human and being presented with the necessity to make choices, we require a measuring stick, a guidance system for how to make those choices and on what basis to make those choices. And that is what morality is. And so when I say morality is objective, what I mean is that the necessity of having a, a morality to guide you, the necessity of having to make choices in the first place, emerges objectively from the fact of human life and the fact of human existence and the fact of what it takes to perpetuate and sustain human life. And that's important. It's important because if, if we fail, if we lose sight of that, if we use, lose sight of the fact that at the foundation of morality, at the root of morality, is the requirements of human life, then we will very quickly become unmoored 
from the purpose of our choices and therefore the the right measuring stick by which we should judge whether or not something is good or bad and that is human life is it good for human life or is it bad for human life that's the question that we ought to ask ourselves whenever we're trying to determine whether something is good or bad generally closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm twin com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. You can catch us 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. It's always great having you with us. Brad Omlin produces the show. Doing something a little bit different tonight. Instead of our usual perusal of the news, going through uh, headlines and reacting to them with righteous indignation, we're taking a break from all that. We're, we're turning off our news feeds, shutting down our uh, televisions, and just you know, having a chat like human beings about things that matter, ideas that are important, you know, what it is, what our values are, what ideas shape our analysis of the news when we get around to taking a look at it again. And our, our guideline that I'm presenting for us to try to help us with that task is a list of eight rules that I've come up with, the standing rules for closing argument. And this is, the, this is a revised list. It's the second edition that I've come to and, and taken a second look at after about a year and a half of hanging out with you guys and uh, fleshing them out more deeply. And the first couple were A is A, the law of identity. A thing is what it is. You know, truth is something that is important and objective, something that we ought to acknowledge and that we need to acknowledge. It's kind of important. You know, reality is our is the context in which we live and therefore of some degree of importance to us. And we ought to acknowledge it as such. And the second rule was that morality is objective. And by that I mean the root of morality, the the reason why we need a morality is because we are human beings with a human nature that requires us to make choices and our choices are determined to be good or bad relative to whether or not they affirm or detract from the requirements of human life. And that is an objective consideration. Does this make my life better rationally or does it make my life worse? Is it good or is it bad? And so in that context, having understood those first two, you know, little principles, we can get to the third rule, which is liberty is moral. Liberty is moral. Now, this is extraordinarily important and something that I think many of us on the political right have lost touch with and certainly certainly have not prioritized in terms of you know both our own thinking and how we advocate for our, our ideas. Now the left the left is constantly portraying their ideas and their worldview and their positions as moral imperatives, right? You know they're always talking about the morality of policy. You know this latest brouhaha over the separation of the children of illegal immigrants crossing the border. 
a moral issue, right? Like, oh, how horrific. You know, what's the right thing to do? Who's on the right side of the issue? Who's on the wrong side of the issue? And you go down the list, whether you're talking about health care, education, economics, income inequality, the environment, all of them are moral issues as the left presents them. And it doesn't even matter. You know, we talked earlier tonight about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and their insane Medicare for all scheme, which they can't pay for. Like they cannot. There is there is no set of circumstances, even if they secure complete political victory, they will never be able to implement their ideas. That's how stupid they are. That's how misaligned with reality their ideas are. There is no set of circumstances wherein they would ever be able to manifest them, right? And yet, and, and we know it. That's the, that's the worst part. We all know it. The left knows it. They'll never be able to come up with the money. They know it, and they've tried. States have passed these laws. There's a, a whole list of states that have tried to implement single payer in their state, and then they've gone and tried to the to the proverbial whiteboard and tried to figure it out and realized it's not going to work. We can't pay for it. Where, where's the money going to come from? We don't know. And then they've just given up. They just gave up because it physically, realistically cannot happen. And yet, and yet, they continue to argue for it. They continue to pursue it. After discovering that it can't possibly ever work, why? 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 Because of the moral argument. The moral argument. They have decided that it is morally necessary to implement single payer. And so the the tiny little distraction that it's physically impossible, that it cannot happen under reality currently as we see it, is not something that they're going to allow to get in their way. And they're going to continue to advocate for it because they have the moral high ground as they see it. Conversely, on the right, we tend to take kind of a utilitarian approach to how we advocate for our policies. And we say, well, you know, we should, we should cut regulation and cut taxes because studies show that that's good for the economy. Okay, well, that's true, but... In terms of persuasion, in terms of motivation, in terms of providing a nucleus around which a political coalition can be built, it's not particularly provocative. Eh, it works, therefore we should do it, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is If that's the best we can do on the right, then we're going to lose over time. We're going to lose, and we have, right? Like we, Right now, Republicans are winning politically, but don't let that confuse you. Don't let that fool you into thinking that the right is winning the culture. It's not. We are losing the culture, as evidenced by the leftward shift in Republican thinking that has taken place over the past decade or so. And so, you know, coming back to this idea of liberty is moral, the good news is, the good news is we don't have to make up a moral claim. We don't have to pretend that our ideas are moral. Our ideas actually are. Liberty is a moral requirement of human life. When I talk about morality being objective, you know, these, these rules build upon one another. When I talk about morality being objective in that it is born of or comes out of, is a product of the requirements of human life, the fact of human nature, 
the fact that human beings need to be able to make choices in order to obtain and keep the values necessary to sustain them. The natural conclusion out of all of that is that we must be left free to make those choices. If the requirement of human life is choice, then by God, you must be able to make the choice, right? I mean, just obviously, logically, you need to be free in order to be who you are. Going back to the first law, A is A, the law of identity. In order to be what you are, a human being, and proceed according to your nature, which is choice, chosen values, chosen pursuits, productivity, you must be free to do so. Liberty is moral. And by contrast, its absence is unjust. To the degree that you are not free, an injustice has been perpetrated against you. And this is the other irony, is that the left, in, and we'll get into later talking about the interaction between the culture of gratitude versus the culture of grievance. But the, the culture of grievance that dominates the left, the, the sense, the narrative of oppression and victimization and everybody's a victim and everybody's being oppressed by white heterosexual cisgender males and what have you, Christians. That narrative, while false, is actually a projection of something that is true. And, and this is very common on the left. You know, they'll make a complaint. They gaslight. They'll accuse their opposition of doing something that they, in fact, are doing. In truth, they are the oppressors. In truth, they are the ones who are committing injustice on a systemic, institutional, large-scale, class-based, race-based effort, manner, and process. They're the ones who are seeking and perpetrating injustice on a massive scale because they're against liberty, and liberty is moral, and morality is objective. And A is A. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. That's what we're going to talk about here in uh, this last segment of the hour. Money. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We've been going through the standing rules of the program, the standing rules of closing argument. And, you know, we're taking a break from the news. We're taking a break from the headlines to kind of remind ourselves what it is that we believe and, more importantly, why it is that we believe it. I think I think it does us well to every once in a while pause and take stock of our values, take stock of our beliefs and remind ourselves what those beliefs even are so that when we go back to the news, when we go back to our analysis of politics and culture, we can do so with a refreshed sense of right and wrong, a refreshed sense of purpose in, in terms of what it is we're even trying to accomplish. And that's what we've been doing here tonight. So... You know, for this relatively short segment, I have to try to shoehorn in a concept, a rule that is potentially very complicated, but I'm going to try to, to concisely state it in as simple a manner as possible. And that idea is this. 
economic value is human value. You know, often when we hear the phrase, you know, even you know, perhaps just now, when you hear the phrase economic value, there's a part of your brain that just goes to sleep. There's a part of your soul that dies, right? When, when you hear the word economic or the phrase economic value, there's something inherently dispassionate and inhuman and calculating and cold about that. But the fact is, the fact of the matter is, economic value is human value. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when you look at at the price of something, the price of a product or service, what you're actually looking at, you know, it's a number, whatever the number is. Let's say a price of gas is, what is it right now, averaging around 280 a gallon, something along those lines. When the price of gas is 280 a gallon, that signifies something. It signifies a whole bunch of things. It signifies the the relationship, the supply and demand that that is a amalgam of all of the processes involved in producing gasoline and bringing it to the market everything from the the discovery the exploration and discovery of petroleum of the oil the crude oil to the drawing it out of the earth to the refining it into various petroleum products to, to turning it into gasoline, shipping it to the various stations, and pumping it into your tank. All of that is factored, all of that is distilled down to a number, $2.80 per gallon. And th- that's not just a cold number. It is a calculation. It is a number. It is those things. But it's also something else. It's a reflection of human desire. And it's a, a indication of human productivity and human exertion and the expenditure of human life. On both ends of the transaction, human beings had to expend some portion of their lives, of which we have a finite amount, in order to arrive at that exchange of that particular product or whatever particular service it is that we're talking about. There are human beings behind that price. Human beings behind the production of literally everything on this planet. And that's, we have to remember that. Because once you do this, once you realize that economic value is human value, it becomes sacred. A price is something that you should not touch. You should not interfere with. It's a relationship, it's a personal relationship between buyer and seller that is sacred and should not be interfered with. We should not be trying to artificially fix prices, inflate prices, deflate prices, set prices. We shouldn't be punishing people for the economic activity that they engage in. We should not be trying to force them to engage in economic activity that they don't value, right? Because to the extent that we do any of those things, we are offending, we are intruding upon the human value that is represented in those transactions. And that's irreplaceable. All it does is, you know, and this is a point that we make frequently on the program. Anytime you interfere, whether it's through a tariff, looking at you, Trump, or whether it's through taxes, looking at you, Democrats, or whether it's through some sort of mandate or you know, some sort of regulation, some sort of effort to protect a certain industry or to subsidize another industry, looking at you, agriculture, right? 
All of these efforts to interfere with the economy in order to try to affect a particular outcome for a particular constituency, the only effect it has is destructive. Because what it does is it introduces white noise into the signal of price. Price is a signal. It's something that tells us what the economic value of a particular product or service actually is. And that's a reflection of the human value, the actual human value that went into producing it. And so if you take action to interfere with that signal, you are disrupting the communication of that value between buyer and seller, which means that you're in effect blinding them to reality. That's all you're doing. You're making it more difficult for producers and consumers in the market to understand and perceive the reality that is presented to them. And when that happens on a large enough scale, very, very bad things start to happen. Just look to Venezuela for an example. You know how you get bread lines? By interfering in the signal of price. By, by artificially trying to subsidize or by trying to you know, restrict on either end of the spectrum. No matter what the interference is, whether you're trying to put a, a thumb on this side of the scale or the other side of the scale, the effect is the same. You are taking information out of the economy. You're taking information out of people's consideration of what they ought to do. Should I buy more or should I buy less? Should I produce more or should I produce less? And that is only destructive. It never affects a good. Economic value is human value. Or, put another way, the price is always right. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Appreciate you joining us tonight. We're on 9 to 11 weeknights. You can catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. Check out past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in that iHeartRadio app. Our channel will pop right up there for you. Brad Omlin produces the show. We're doing something a little bit different tonight. We're taking a break from our consideration of the news, taking a break from our consideration of the headlines, and we're getting back to basics. We're going through some some fundamental ideas, the ideas that I utilize in my analysis of the news night in and night out here on the program, you know, for a couple of purposes. First of all, you know, to from my perspective, to advocate for these ideas because I think they're essential. I think they're correct, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and I think they're worth advocating for. I think they're worth adopting. But also, just to, even if you disagree with them, even if you disagree with me, I think one of the objectives, you know, we have a lot of lefties who listen to this show, as indicated by the fact that they call in every once in a while. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the effort to try to understand that with which you disagree. And so even if you disagree with the things that I'm articulating tonight or any night, it's my job to ensure that you understand that with which you disagree. And so in that spirit, we're going through these eight different rules that I've come up with that are kind of indicative of different principles and ideas that I utilize in my analysis. So that even if you disagree with the take that I have on a particular issue, at least you'll understand how I arrived at it. 
And, you know, during the first hour, we went through the first four, which were in order. A is A, which is the law of identity. A thing is what it is. You know, this is kind of important. It's the foundation upon which everything else is built. You know, basically, if we're going to, in order to have a conversation about literally anything at all, we have to have some sort of common ground. And the common ground that I'm asking for is really, really easy and should be non-controversial. And that's that reality is a thing. (laughs) Reality is a thing that exists and matters. And it's the context in which we live. And so we should probably acknowledge it as such. It is what it is. A is A, the law of identity. Things are what they are, and they are not what they are not. The second rule is morality is objective, meaning, in short, that it is born from the necessity for a morality is born out of our objective observations of human nature. Human beings, uniquely amongst all of the creatures on this planet, require the capacity to choose in order to pursue and keep their values, which leads to the third rule, which is that liberty is moral. Liberty is a moral necessity. We must be free in order to choose, in order to seek after and keep our values. And lastly, we covered last hour the notion that economic value is human value. You know, we always, you hear libertarians and conservatives and right-wingers talk about economics in terms that seem very cold and calculating and, you know, to, to seem to lack empathy and lack a sense of, of human feeling But the fact of the matter is, is that economic value is human value. You cannot claim to value humanity if you do not value economics, because what economics is, is a reflection of the choices that human beings have made, the productivity that they've chosen to engage in, the efforts that they've chosen to devote their finite time on this earth toward. And so in recognizing the human value, which is reflected in economic value, It becomes sacred. It becomes something that we should not touch, that we should not try to influence for any sort of imagined gain because it's impossible to gain anything from such influence. The price is always right in a condition of liberty. The price that two people are willing to engage in transaction, engage in trade, having met, having agreed upon, is always the correct price. All right. Having laid all that foundation... We can start to get into how this applies. How does this apply to our culture, to our politics, to the news of the day, whatever the headline happens to be? And so we come to rule number five, and that is this. A just, moral, and free society both proceeds from and produces a culture of gratitude and consent. Now, you've heard me talk about you know, these cultures, if you've been listening to the program for any length of time, the culture of gratitude and consent. This is both the product and the progenitor of a just, moral, and free society. When you live in a condition of liberty, when you live in a society that respects these fundamental ideas, you know, the ideas which you may characterize as the founding ideas, Right. The notions that were put forward as justification for political separation in the Declaration of Independence, you know, the, the notion that the the purpose of government is in order to provide security for people to proceed in, in defense of their life under the condition of liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Right. If, if we a society which believes that 
and embraces that and codifies that and bases its law upon it is one that's going to produce a culture where people are grateful. They're grateful for what they have. They're grateful for opportunities. They're grateful to their God and to their nation and to each other for the, for the privileges that they enjoy. Yes, their privileges. You know, all, all this talk of privilege, yes, there's a whole bunch of privilege everywhere, and that's a good thing. It's something we should be grateful for. Aren't we? Shouldn't we be grateful for the privileges that we enjoy? I should think so, right? It's also a culture of consent, wherein out of necessity, th- th- this is something that's, that happens naturally and out of necessity. If you live in a condition of liberty, if you live in a condition of freedom, you must live according to consent because force is not an option. A, a proper rights-respecting government that proceeds from the, the moral premise that you must be free, that freedom, that liberty is a requirement of human life that must be respected, that individual rights are sacrosanct and must be upheld. Such a culture, such a society presents one with a scenario wherein the only possible way that you can obtain that which you value is through consensual relationship. You actually have to be able, if you don't have the option to pull out a gun, if you don't have the option to club somebody over the head, if you don't have the option to maim or, or assault or steal, if you don't have the option to subsidize or redistribute or tax, if you don't have the option to force, then the only thing you can go to is offer. Offer. What have you considered? Would you like? What can I do for you? What can we trade? Consent. A culture of consent. And this is a good way to live, folks. Just think about it. And this is this is not a there's nothing utopian about this. I'm not saying that, you know, in the that you often hear libertarians described as being utopian in the sense that you know, we seek after uh, a society that can't possibly ever exist. But that's not true. You know what? You know why it's not true? Because nowhere in our promise, nowhere in our uh, advocacy for what we would consider to be the ideal society, is there any guarantee that bad things won't happen to you? We're not offering. The left is offering that guarantee. We are not. We're not telling you that you're never going to have a bad situation arise in your life. All we're telling you is that you're going to have every opportunity to meet those challenges free from the initiation of force. And, and if force ever becomes a factor in your life, it's going to be dealt with by a rights-respecting government that's going to affect justice. If you are stolen from, you will be made whole through the justice system. If you are assaulted, a person will have to pay a penance for that crime that is, that is commensurate with the crime that they committed. Justice will be affected. That's the context. That's what happens in a rights-respecting situation. And so, you know, this is something that we ought to be seeking after. It is the libertarian objective, and I would argue the, the only conservative objective. When we talk about conservatism, you know, I use these terms interchangeably. And the reason I do so is because I believe there is no real difference between them. Honestly, there isn't. To the extent that conservatism drifts from libertarianism, it becomes something else. Because what is it 
you, you have to define for me what is it that you're trying to conserve, right? If you're going to call yourself a conservative, well, I'm a conservative. Okay, what are you trying to conserve, conservative? You know, usually when you describe yourself as something, if you, you know, if you were to come up to me and say, I'm a firefighter. Oh, really? What do you fight again? Well, I fight fires, right? Like, you know what that means. Okay, you're a conservative. Okay, so what do you conserve? I, what I conserve, what I'm looking to conserve in the culture and in society is liberty. That's it. That's the whole thing. Everything else, all of the, the political objectives, all the policy goals, all of the culture war battlefronts that we find ourselves on, the purpose of all of that, the end leading out from all those means is the preservation of liberty, the restoration of liberty. That is the point. That's the point. And the the nice thing about being a libertarian or a conservative, a true conservative, which is interchangeable with libertarian, the, the beauty of it is that you're getting after a scenario. You're getting after a society wherein you are rewarded with unlimited potential. You know, like you're the the bad news is we're all going to die, right? Like at some point our life is going to be over. You know, there there is a a cap to what we're going to be able to experience, to what we're going to be able to achieve. However, we have two choices. We fundamentally we have two choices. We can either live in a world where that cap that limit of what we can achieve and what we can experience is determined by us and by our potential and our choices and our priorities and our values. We can either live in that world, which is the condition of liberty, or we could live in a world where other people get to box us in and contain us and tie us down and strap us to a metaphorical tree. Which would you rather have? And the answer, when put in those terms, is quite obvious, is it not? So, you know, this notion, the trick that the left pulls is they try to offer you a, a utopian vision of a world where nothing bad is ever going to happen. That's not my promise. That's not our promise on the right. Our promise is we will provide you with a world where you get to determine on what terms you encounter the good, the bad, and everything in between. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right, we've discussed the light side of the force. Now it's time to delve into the dark, the ways of the bad guys, the culture of conquest and grievance. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. Brad Omlin produces the show. We're going through these standing rules that I've developed for the program. And really just all they are is a, a succinct statement of various concepts and principles that I go back to when I'm engaging in my nightly analysis of the news and the headlines and the goings on in the world, you know, we're, we're stepping away from that usual process. We're changing our modus operandi tonight and, you know, putting the newspaper down, you know, turning our social media feeds off 
and just getting back to these core root ideas in order to help us you know, better understand, you know, for those of us on the right, to remind us of what it is that we believe and, more importantly, why we believe it. And for those of you who are on the left, to gain some insight into your opposition, gain some insight into what it is that we actually believe. So, we just talked about how a just, moral, and free society proceeds from and produces a culture of gratitude and consent. Now it's time to examine the other side of that coin. Standing rule number six. An unjust, immoral, and shackled society proceeds from and produces a culture of grievance and conquest. And again, you know, the, the culture is both a progenitor of and a product of injustice, immorality, and a lack of freedom, force, right? This, this is what causes people to be aggrieved and to turn to conquest as their main means to obtain and keep their values. You know, because just about, you know, we talked about how in a condition of liberty, the only option available to you in order to obtain and keep values is to make an offer to your fellow human beings or to engage out, you know, you can make everything yourself. You can be, you can go produce your own food, produce your own shelter, or you could do the thing in a division of labor in a free economy. You can focus on the thing that you're good at your job and you could obtain income from that represented by currency. And then you can go out and you can make offers to the wide variety of people that make up society in order to obtain the values which you uh, seek to, uh, to obtain and keep. When you're not free, when the, there is a system in place whereby the values are controlled, the values are kept and distributed and doled out, and the process by which who gets to have them and who gets to enjoy them is determined through force, in that context, two things happen. One, you become very, very aggrieved. You become very, very offended and have this deep, profound sense of victimization. You know, I told this, this story before of an unfortunate period in my wife and I's life during which we lived in a duplex somewhere here in the metro area. And the family that lived adjacent to us in the same building, the other unit, was uh, a family of Russian immigrants. And I don't know at what point they immigrated here to the United States, but it was very clear from their attitudes and behaviors that they had been, they'd been in Russia for a while before they came over here. And the reason why it was, uh, that was apparent was because they were steeped in this culture of grievance. And this culture of conquest, whereby the only means by which you can obtain that which you value is by putting one over on the other guy. You know, I, I had this, this scenario where the first time I went out to go mow our lawn, the, the arrangement, according to the landlord, was yeah, you mow your side and the other people will mow their side. It's a duplex, right? You know, so you mow the side that's on yours and they'll mow the side that's on theirs. So I went out for the first time to mow the lawn. Thinking nothing of it, mowed what I, in my judgment, deemed to be my side. Now, apparently, you know, wh wherever the magic line was that was dividing the, the units of the duplex, apparently I must have misjudged it. I don't know. Maybe I got it wrong. 
Uh, apparently, my neighbor thought I did because he went out to mow the lawn after me, and he left this giant mohawk strip of uncut grass <laughs> right down the middle of both the front and the backyard, just to make his point. Right, and that was that was I could I could tell stories for you know far longer than we have time that demonstrate this this mentality of all right I'm going to show you right I'm gonna I'm gonna get one over on you. And it was born out of the culture in which he grew up, the culture in which he was steeped, in which you know that you couldn't just go over to somebody and make an offer, because freedom wasn't the context in which you were living. Everything was doled out, everything was assigned, everything was dictated, everything was mandated, and that creates this sense of grievance, this sense of having been victimized and to some degree oppressed. And so when that's your mentality, when your mentality is that I'm a victim, I'm oppressed, I, I'm contained, I have nowhere I can go, I don't have control over my life. That's really the root sentiment, the root underlying sentiment. I don't have control over my life. Then the only thing you can turn to is conquest. And that's the moment we find ourselves in politically and culturally today. We increasingly on both it's always been a part of the left it's a foundational fundamental definitive aspect of the left but it is creeping its way into the right now in the era of Donald Trump and the the turn that the Republican party has taken in the past couple of years increasingly we too are adopting this culture of conquest this culture of grievance that we've been put out you know we've been unfairly treated that we need to we, the only way we can put things right is by conquering the other side, by seizing the club of the state in order to initiate force to affect our will, in order to take that which we are owed. You know, you see this manifest in, in things like the tariffs. We're going to, you know, the, the, something's been taken. Our jobs have been taken from us. And so we're going to take them back by initiating force through the tariffs. That is, a, that is something that emerges from a sense of grievance and a desire to conquer your perceived enemies. And that's the wrong direction. That's not the direction we should be going. And to the extent that we continue to do so, we're only going to foster further injustice because we're proceeding on immoral terms and we're just trading who gets to wear the shackles in our society. And, you know, the, the freedom is a, is, a, is a net calculation. You know, you don't you don't obtain liberty by shifting the change to another or the, the chains to another segment of the population by saying, OK, now we won the election. So we're going to take the chains off us and we're going to put them on other people. And now we're somehow more free as a nation. No, it's a net calculation. We should be striving after total freedom for everyone. And in that context, again, you know, going back to what we talked about before in terms of economic value being moral value, economic value being human value. In a context of liberty, the, the, what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad, what has value and what doesn't, is sorted out in the marketplace. But both the marketplace of you know, the exchange of products and services and the marketplace of ideas. It's only in the condition of liberty, the condition of freedom, the condition where people are free to interact with one another and, and to judge for themselves what is of value to them that, we arrive, that we're able to tap into this collective consciousness 
whereby the, the amalgam of everybody's interactions reflects itself in something like price or popularity you know, the, of, a, of a particular idea, the adoption of particular ideas, and the, the widespread acceptance of it. Only bad ideas require force in order to implement them, right? You know, you, you hear this joke told every once in a while by conservatives, you know, by people on the right, and when they're talking about socialism, ideas so good we have to force you to adopt them, right? Like I, ideas so good that we have to make them the law, right, in order for you to actually sign on to it. And that there's a truth to that. I mean, it's not just a truth to it. It is true. The, if, if there was actual value in the ideas that the left puts forward, then they wouldn't have to force it. They wouldn't have to write a law. People would choose to engage in it. And indeed, if you want to run your household or your commune you know, like a, a giant socialist collective and people are willing to cooperate with you in that endeavor, more power to you. That, too, is liberty. So long as you're not pointing a gun at anyone and forcing them to do it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. All right, now it's time to drop the hammer. Now it's time to make the big statement, draw the big conclusion. These last two standing rules for closing argument with yours truly, Walter Hudson. These last two ideas which inform our analysis of the news on a nightly basis are kind of the the synthesis of everything that came before. You know, we've been outlining notions like the law of identity. Reality is a thing. Things are what they are. You know, morality is objective. It emerges from the fact of human nature and the requirements of human life. Liberty is moral because in order to make choices, which is the domain of morality, you must be free to do so. Economic value is human value. You know, the expenditure of human life went into the production of everything that is available in the market. And so that price that you disagree with because it doesn't conform with your sense of, you know, where a minimum wage ought to be or, you know, it doesn't price in what you think is valuable, completely irrelevant because you're not the one who's making the decision whether or not to buy or sell. And that economic value, that price point is a reflection of the human endeavors that went into producing that thing and you have nothing to do with that you don't get to interfere with that you know all of these ideas add up to a contest an emergent contest between a culture of gratitude and consent versus a culture of grievance and conquest and so you know these last two points the one we're going to focus on uh, for for this segment is that the left does not now and cannot ever value truth, justice, science, compassion, or dignity. Now, that's a pretty broad, sweeping statement, right? Like, oh, wow, like I can see the lefties rolling their eyes as they hear it. The left does not now and cannot ever value truth, justice, science, compassion, or dignity. Now, why do I pick those things? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, because that's what the left claims they do value, right? They claim to value truth. They claim to value justice. They're constantly wielding the term justice in their rhetoric. They claim to be the party of science. I I believe in science. You know, like, they, like <laughs> which is a stupid turn of phrase into itself that we could spend a whole segment talking about. 
They claim to be the ones who are compassionate. Oh, we feel, we feel you. We feel your pain. We empathize, right? And they claim to be concerned with dignity, the, the ability to proceed in a dignified manner, to have a dignified civil discourse. But in point of fact, the left does not now and cannot ever value any of those things. Let's start with truth, because truth is the big one. The left cannot value truth because they've rejected the context in which truth is of value in the first place. And again, it shouldn't be a surprise to you at this point, that context is liberty. You know, previously we talked about the fact that when you're living in a condition of liberty, when you're living in a condition whereby you don't have the option to pick up a gun, you don't have the option to club somebody over the head or to otherwise force them to give you what you want, the only option you have available to you is consensual relationship, mutually beneficial trade. You have to offer something. You have to bring something to the table that is of value to your fellow human beings in order to convince them to engage with you. That's the only option that you have in a condition of liberty, right? And so to that end, in that context, truth becomes an inherent value. You need to know the, the caveat impor, right? Buyer beware. This is real consumer protection. You want, you want consumer protection? Here's what you need. Freedom. That's consumer protection. You, you want consumer protection? Give me some liberty. That protects me as a consumer. How? Because in a condition of liberty, the truth becomes of paramount importance. I need to know that what you're offering me is genuine, that your brand can be trusted, that your product has actual value. That is worth what I'm considering exchanging in trade for it. And there, there is no means. Your options for fooling me are limited and temporary. Sure, you can put one over on me. You can commit fraud. You can lie to me about you know, what it is that your product or service does. But unless you have the ability to keep me from discerning the truth, unless you have the ability to interfere with the communication of value in the free market, you will not be able to sustain that fiction. You will not be able to sustain that fraud. And eventually, eventually you're going to develop a reputation as being a liar. You're going to develop a reputation as being a charlatan. And this is something that happens naturally. And again, this goes back to the idea that we're not promising on the right we're not promising a world where nothing bad ever happens. We're not promising a world where you're never going to get stolen from or there's never going to be fraud or there, there's never going to be some some bad actor who engages in bad faith. In fact, I can promise you all of that will happen, right? The difference is in a condition of liberty, you have the means to address it, number one. And two, it's it's the only condition in which the the incentives exist to minimize it. Because you cannot sustain yourself. When force isn't an option, you cannot sustain yourself without being truthful, without being honest, without having a brand and a reputation for being an, an, a, a stand-up guy, so to speak. And you know, so the, the left doesn't value this. And we see this right now in terms of their attacks on, on free speech and their desire to shut down venues and messages with which they disagree, and every public policy prescription they have in terms of interfering with the market, the truth is not of value to them. 
What's of value is their agenda. What's of value is their wishes for how things should be, not how they actually are. And the only way that they can affect that, the only way that they can can get the broader society to subscribe to what they're selling is by pointing a metaphorical and eventually literal gun at their heads and saying, you will subscribe to this. So truth is not a value on the left. Justice, obviously, is not a value on the left. If you're going to if you're the whole premise of your worldview is we're going to initiate force in order to impose our views upon everybody else. By definition, that's an injustice. The initiation of force against the means by which people sustain their own lives is an inherent injustice. They can't be for science because the the scientific method, the scientific process, again, just like it, it as a as a activity emergent from human nature, requires liberty as a context. You have to be free in order to develop your hypothesis. You have to be free in order to communicate it to others. You have to be free to experiment. You have to be free to replicate the results of other people's experiments. And you have to be free to determine, having analyzed all of that, whether or not the conclusions are true or false. All of that requires liberty, requires the context. And you know, by contrast, what the left wants to do is they want to dictate through acts of Congress, through acts of the state legislature, what is true and what is false, what is scientific, what is not. They don't want you to make that decision. They don't want to leave you free to it. And similarly, compassion. This is, this is one of the big ones. The left claims, well, you know, if all else fails, at least we're the ones who are compassionate. At least we're the ones who are empathetic. Nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. You cannot tell me you are compassionate towards another human being while at the same time initiating force against them. That is not possible. You can't tell me, hey, in an act of compassion, I'm going to take your liberty away. In an act of compassion, I'm going to tell you under the threat of force what you must do. In an act of compassion, I'm going to tell you what you cannot do. I'm going to keep you from engaging in interactions, in relationships, in trades with other people who want to engage with you on terms you've both agreed to. I'm going to step between the two of you and say, no, you can't. There's nothing compassionate about that. That's the opposite of compassion. That is thuggery. That's being a bully. And that's the, the, uh, the defining characteristic of the left. And lastly, this notion of dignity. Listen, the, 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 idea, the idea that you're going to convey dignity upon a person by showering them with resources that you've seized from somebody else. You, you want to know how, you know, one of the context, again, and I'm sounding like a broken record at this point, but the only context in which dignity is possible is the context of liberty. Because only in the condition of liberty do you earn the dignity you have through your own choices, through your own productivity, through the values that you pursue. There is nothing, no government check, nobody has ever cashed a government check and felt dignified. Not once. By contrast, when you cash your paycheck, that's something to be proud of. That's something that makes you hold your head just a little bit higher because you earned it. That's the root of human dignity. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com.
I love this song. Remember this from Superman 2, the old Christopher Reeve film? That was a great moment. You know, I think they played it twice. And they played it at the very end where he comes back to that Arctic diner, which, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many diners there are up in the Arctic Circle, but apparently there's at least one and a lot of truckers go there and they're, they're not very well behaved. Superman in the guise of Clark Kent goes back at the end to put one over on his bully and they're playing this song. Yeah, that's good stuff. Good stuff right there. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Brad Omlin produces the show. Appreciate you joining us tonight. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's been fun. You know, we've gone through these standing rules of the program, and this is the revised second edition that I've put together after about 18 months of being on this program with you guys and engaging with you and putting my ear to the ground of the news of the day, day after day for a year and a half, and uh, have, have revised these foundational ideas that uh, I utilize in my analysis of the news. And I've uh, been conveying it to you for a couple of purposes. One, because I think they're good ideas that are, are worthy of being considered and adopted. And also, you know, even if you disagree with them, even if you disagree with me, it, it, at least you will understand what it is that you disagree with. I think we, we don't have enough of that in society, in our world, in effort to sincerely understand that with which you disagree. And, you know, we get callers in the program who identify as progressive or left wing every once in a while. And, you know, they'll to, to varying extents, they'll say, well, you're not you're not characterizing this correctly. You're you're arguing against a straw man, Walter. This isn't what we really believe. And, you know, with the whether or not that's true is something we can certainly discuss. And I'm open to because I do want to understand what it is that you believe. I do want to get the argument correct in terms of what it is that I'm arguing against. And hopefully you do, too. All right. So we come down to this, the eighth and final standing rule here on closing argument. And that is this. The right, political and cultural, the political and cultural right only matters in so much as it opposes the left and does not simply compete with it. Now, let me unpack that, right? There's right now in the, in the current moment that we're living in, the current political moment, there's a kind of internal inquisition that is evergreen and ongoing within the Republican Party and within conservative circles, whereby, you know, you're, you're constantly being tested for your loyalty, in particular to the person of Donald Trump, but also into the broader agenda of what it is that Donald Trump represents. And, you know, what it is that he represents shifts from day to day, moment to moment, which is, you know, a big part of the problem. But, you know, regardless, regardless, this idea that what's become important now on the right is being with Trump and affirming Trump and standing with him against whoever it is he happens to be standing against at the at this particular moment, whether it's LeBron James or, you know, the 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 fake news media or whatever or whatever, whoever he's in a fight with on Twitter at this particular moment, that that's what's important. That's what matters. That's what matters on the right. That's how we know you're on the right is whether or not you're with Trump and you're against whoever he's against today. That is wrong. That is wrong. It's in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it further. That's garbage. There is no value in that whatsoever. Listen, I don't care. First, f like fundamentally, like as a as a primary value, I don't care about the Republican Party 
at all. Like with 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 if if there's no other context, like outside of any other context, I could care less whether it succeeds or fails. I only care about the Republican Party to the extent that it is working successfully to affect the principles I hold dear in public policy. That is where it gains its worth. That is where it gains its value, is in what it is achieving and what it is aiming to achieve. The political right only matters to the extent that it opposes the left and what the left represents, not just competes with it. And, you know, this. what happened in 2016 is Republicans won, right? What happened in 2016 is the right quote, one, unquote, because some elections went the right way. But that all, that's, all that is is competing with the left. That's not opposing them. If you, if you win elections and then once you're put into office, you just do the same things to varying degrees and to the benefit of different constituencies that the left does through your economic interventions and your spending and your failure to address entitlements, your failure to address the big fiscal elephants in the room and what have you, failure to overturn Obamacare. You're not going to do anything about these big existential problems that are undermining the fiscal and moral integrity of the republic. If that's all you have to offer, then there isn't a whole lot of value there. And so my final appeal to you tonight is not that, you know, not to abandon the Republican Party or to, you know, to be, to be some sort of, uh, to pick up your ball and go home. That's not what I'm advocating for. What I'm advocating for is pushing, pushing back, pushing in the direction of, hey, let's remember what it is, why it is that we're here and what it is that we're getting after, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. It's not just beating the left. It's not just owning the libs. It's not just winning the next election. What we're getting after is affecting justice, securing liberty, restoring the republic, preserving peace. That's what the right is all about. That's what gives it value. And to the extent that the Republican Party goes after those things, that's what makes them worth supporting. So be that. Do that. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.